You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Before we welcome Pastor Kevin to the stage, please join me in today's scripture reading from Matthew 19, 1 through 12. Please stand if you're able. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Whatever therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men— And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. You know, nearly every week I come across an article that speculates about how society is going to change because of the last six months. So there'll be articles about work and There's speculation that people will commute less to work and work more from home. There's speculation about school and how the the infrastructure we've built to do online learning, how that might carry over. And like the saddest news is that there might not be any more snow days anymore for our kids because they can just hop online. There's speculation about real estate and about home improvement and about the, the energy people will put on their homes, that it might be a good time to buy stock in Lowe's or Home Depot. There's speculation about travel, airlines, hotels, so many things. And and some of the speculation is talking about how it's going to change us for the worse. But but if you study history, American history in particular, we as a society tend to bounce back from these things. In a lot of ways, we bounce back better. You know, the Spanish flu was followed by the Roaring Twenties. We have, after World War II, led to some of the, the greatest development and expansion in our country's history. So there's a lot of things that I feel like it's some fear-mongering out there of this is what it's going to do to us, where I'm pretty hopeful about the future. But there is one area I do have very real concerns about, and that's the area of marriage in our society. You know, the stats show that over the last six months, the divorce rate has climbed somewhere between 30 and 40%. It's 30 or 40% higher this year than it was last year at this time. That a lot of marriages, especially those who've been married five years or less, um, it's some crazy statistic, like 20% of those marriages are ending in divorce within the first five years. And the reason this concerns me, it's not just the pandemic, it's, it's everything that's been happening that's been leading up to this. 
You know, if you study the statistics, divorce rates have actually fallen in our country over the last 20 years, but so have the rates of marriage. And so you can look at it and say, well, not as many people are getting divorced, but the reason why is because a lot of people just aren't getting married anymore. Then you add in how we're being shaped by our devices and social media. All the stats show that young people are dating less, they're getting married less, they don't see the value in marriage. Maybe they, they've grown up uh, in homes, their parents have been divorced, and so they don't have a vision for marriage. And all of this is coming together, and then I just, I, I'm a pastor here. I talk with people here, and I know there are a lot of marriages that are struggling, and maybe they've been struggling for years, but you could escape to work, out of the house, and being forced to stay under the same roof. It's brought some of these problems to a head. I say all that because originally I was going to preach a little longer passage from Matthew 19, but I wanted to just stay here in these few verses because here, the text Lindsay just read for us, Jesus holds forth, he talks about divorce, but he also holds forth God's design, God's vision for human sexuality and marriage. And it's challenging. It runs against the grain of our culture, but it's not just our culture. It's most cultures throughout history. Jesus's teachings and the the weightiness, the gravity that he attaches to this teaching, it's always made it somewhat unpopular. But Jesus has the words of life, and there's no one else we can go to to learn about what marriage is supposed to be than him. Before we jump into the text, because we're going to be talking about divorce, I just want to say up front, I know many of you here have been through a divorce. And some of you, it was not your fault at all. Some of you, it absolutely was your fault. Some of you, your divorce is what actually led you to faith in Christ, that God orchestrated that. And I just want to say, my aim today, as we talk about these hard, sensitive, complex things, it's not to open old wounds or create new ones. It's to open God's word, because I think in his word, you can find healing, hope, and a vision for the future. And so what we're going to do, we're going to walk through this text line by line, and then we're going to draw out a couple of applications, a couple of words I want to put before you in light of it. But before we do, let's pray together that God, by his spirit, he might give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, we thank you for your word. We think that your word's not a fairy tale that, that, that deals with abstractions that have no bearing on our day-to-day life, but it speaks, it looks directly in the eyes of the problems we have and the challenges we face as human beings. And you speak to it. Sometimes your word is very hard. It's hard to receive, but we know that you speak the truth because you, you created us, you designed us, you love us, you know how we're supposed to work. And so, Lord, I pray, I pray two particular things this morning. One, I pray that your word is hard and there's, there's such gravity in Jesus' words here. I pray that we wouldn't let that overshadow the fact that Jesus gave these words as he was making his way to the cross. And that we are not saved because we have beautiful marriages or we're the best wife or the best husband or best parent. We're saved by your grace. On the other hand, I pray that we would not 
we would not let grace be used as an excuse to sin or disobedience. We would not let your grace be an eject button from heart situations. And so I pray that you would give me clarity and you give much grace to us, to everyone here as they, they hear your word, that we might walk out of here loving you more, for married, loving our spouses more, and holding up your vision for marriage. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in verse 1, Matthew tells us that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him. Now that's important, just to hit pause there for a second. The Pharisees aren't coming genuinely interested in what Jesus has to say about marriage. They're laying a trap for him. We already know. Matthew's already made it clear that they are already conspiring of how they're going to bring Jesus down or put him to death. And so they come to him with a very thorny issue that's been thorny throughout the history of God's people, divorce. They tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, that question might seem absurd to us or seem really strange, but that was a question that was hotly debated in that day. And the reason it was hotly debated is because of a passage in Deuteronomy 24. I want to read the passage to you. It's kind of complicated. We can't get into all of the particulars of that passage, but it's important we go there so you understand everything else in this passage here in Matthew 19. So Moses, inspired by God in Deuteronomy 24, writes, he says, when a a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency, and that's a really important phrase, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. Now there's a lot going on there. To sum it up, the big point that, that Moses is saying here is that A man, he can't just be done with his wife, cast her aside, you know, find another wife and then decide he wants to go back and claim her as his wife again. He's putting, drawing some lines. He's saying, if you're pushing your wife out of your house, out of your life, you have to write a certificate of divorce. Now, Moses did this to protect women in a society in which they had no rights and very little protection. But by the time, that's, that's the context, by the time we get to the first century, the rabbis, the Pharisees, everyone's kind of, because divorce is a perennial topic, everyone's gone to this one because this is one of the clear teachings on divorce. And they've kind of got in deep saying, okay, what exactly does this teach us about divorce? And they realize, well, it seems like God's okay with divorce as long as there's some indecency. A man can divorce his wife as long as there's some indecency. So what does that mean? And there were two schools of thought developed by two rabbis and how to interpret that passage. There was the school of the rabbi Shammai. This was the conservative school. And he said indecency, some indecency referred to sexual immorality, adultery or the like. Now, the more progressive school was the school of Rabbi Hillel. And this school said 
Divorce is valid for basically any reason. That some indecency, like that's a big category. So yes, sexual immorality, but also if a wife disobeys her husband, that's indecent. If a wife, one of the things, if a wife twirls in public, like she's walking down the street and does a little pirouette, that's indecency, that's reason for divorce. Even down to if a wife burns her husband's breakfast, he can divorce her. Some of the more progressive rabbis even went so far and said that a man could divorce his wife simply because if he found another woman more pleasing. Now, what, something I didn't really know until I studied this passage this time around is that in this day, in that day, in the first century, uh, the Pharisees, the rabbis, many of them had been divorced and been divorced multiple times. That, that it was kind of an open secret and an open shameful thing, but they justified it because of this verse. They, hadn't, they did it the way God said. And, you know, there's a well-known Jewish historian named jo- Josephus. He was a Pharisee, and he had also divorced his wife. And in one of his writings, he talks about it. He says, I sent away my wife being displeased with her behavior. Then I took a wife from Crete. And I say all that to say, you know, we can look at our society and say, man, divorce is going like crazy. There's so many divorces and it's tearing our society apart. But it was just as prevalent in some ways easier back then than it is now. And the road didn't go both ways. I want to be really clear on that. Men, because the prevailing view was the progressive view. That's the way most people went. Men could divorce their wives for almost any reason. Women had no recourse to divorce their husbands. There was no provision made for them. And so the Pharisees are coming and they're asking Jesus, you know, everyone in that society, they like the progressive viewpoint. And so they're asking Jesus, do you agree with this? Where do you stand? Trying to trap him. They're trying to get him to step into a very thorny issue and take a stand. And there's, there's one other note that's pretty important here that the region where this is taking place is the region of Perea. And that's the region where John the Baptist was Jesus's cousin when Herod came after him and had him beheaded. And if you'll remember, Matthew 14, I believe, the reason Herod had John the Baptist put to death is because John the Baptist called him out for his divorce and for marrying his sister-in-law. And so some speculate that the Pharisees are asking this question in this place because they want Jesus put to death. They don't know how they're going to do it, but maybe he can, you know, He can basically hand the gun to the Roman government by saying some things that will upset Herod and have him put to death. All that's the context. What do you say about divorce, Jesus? Well, Jesus, as he often does, he doesn't wade right into the middle of the divorce debate, but instead he presses into God's design. And here, he presses specifically into God's design for marriage. You know, this is a significant thing that he does, and he does it again and again. Oftentimes in the church, religious folks, we spend all of our time navigating the the intricacies of God's law, and there's nothing wrong with that. And at times it's absolutely necessary, and it's a good and right thing to do. But it goes bad, and it goes wrong when we spend all of our time navigating the intricacies of the law, and we totally take our eyes off of God's design. 
And Jesus here is saying, I'm not, I'm not going to go to Deuteronomy 24. I'm going to go to Genesis 1 and 2. Let's go back to the beginning. And I love it. He says to the Pharisees, he answered, have you not read? Have you spent your whole life reading the Bible? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus says, let's talk about what marriage is before we're going to talk about what divorce is. And there are four affirmations Jesus makes in this passage that I want to hold before you that all speak into Jesus' vision for marriage. Number one, the first, Jesus affirms that both men and women are created in the image of God. When Jesus says, he who created them from the beginning male, made them male and female, the emphatic last two words there are and female. You know, using a holy imagination, I think Jesus probably emphasizes because in that society, women were not treated as co-image bearers. They were treated as property, as not having rights. They're treated, men, men cycle through wives like men today will cycle through cars. And so Jesus starts and he says, let's remember who human beings are, who, who men and women are. They're both created in the image of God. Affirmation number one. Affirmation number two. Jesus affirms that marriage is a gift from God and it's woven into the very fabric, the very structure of his creation. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. What Jesus is telling us here is that marriage is not just a social arrangement. It's not just a, a social construct. But at the very beginning, when God created the universe, and he said, this is how the universe is going to run. He created Adam, and he created Eve, and he commanded that the two of them come together, that they, you know, and their children, male, female, come together. And that's how creation will move forward. Now, this doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you if you're single. This doesn't mean that there's not a place for singleness. Paul upholds singleness. Jesus does even here in this text. But from the very beginning, God created us male and female. And the design was that we would come together in marriage. One male, one female. It's woven into the fabric at the very beginning. Number three. Jesus affirms that marriage is meant to be permanent. And we see this, this, this permanence. It's when Jesus, he quotes from Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, cleave to his wife. That word there can mean something like glue or weld or cement. That in marriage, it's not like two people become Velcroed together, and as long as it's, things are going well, you stay together, and then when it starts to go bad, you pull apart. Marriage is like being glued or cemented to another person. And when you try to break that or you do break that, that's why it's so painful and so messy, because you can't make a clean break. Two become one. The math of marriage, one plus one equals one. I heard someone say recently that marriage is a romance novel in which the hero and the heroine die in the first chapter. 
and then something new is born. Now, this permanence thing, this is where people get tripped up, but it's the very essence of marriage. Early in my pastoral ministry, I did dozens of weddings. Sometimes I would do two or three a weekend, and I got to the place where I would say, I hate weddings. And my wife's like, as a pastor, you probably shouldn't say you hate weddings. I hate doing weddings. Uh, there is much of it that I loved. Um, and as I was, you know, a young pastor, I kind of wanted to be free, and people would ask, can we write our own vows? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, a, not like we read a verse in the Bible that says this is the vow you have to say when you get married. And so I, I, for about a year, I let people write their own vows, but their vows were always things like, I will love you until the stars burn out and the oceans run dry. And I would be performing the wedding thinking, no, you won't. You will be dead so long before that happens. I mean, it sounds, and you know, I think there's a place for a profession of grand poetic love. But I finally said, let's circle back to the traditional vows. Because you know what the traditional vows are? Like, I will love you, I will keep you, to have and to hold, for richer or poor. Life's going great, it's not going so great. We have a lot of money in the bank or we're broke. I'm still going to be here. In sickness and in health. Love you now when you're young, full of energy, no health problems. But even if you get old and you have all sorts of health problems, I'm still going to love you for better or worse. You know, when all of the excitement and adrenaline wears off, you hit your mid-30s and you're exhausted and parenting is hard, doesn't matter. I'm still going to be there. And I'm going to be there through everything until... Death does us part. Jesus designed for marriage to be permanent. And I can't spend too long here, but I do want to say that it's the permanence of marriage, which actually, like, that's part of the sweetness of marriage. It's the permanence of marriage that actually enables you to grow. Because let's be honest, when you are dating or courting, what you are doing is selling yourself every time you're around your prospective spouse. Like, you're putting on a show... You're buying things like cologne, which you'll never wear probably again, men, after you get married. But before, you'll, you'll buy all these things, put all this in it, because you're trying to sell yourself. Trying to hide your weakness and accentuate all your strengths. And ladies, you do it too. But in marriage, that's where, because it's permanent, you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to put on a show. In marriage, that's when, when you learn to love your spouse and they learn to love you, not for, for who they want you to be, but who you actually are. And that's the hardest part of marriage, and it's the best part of marriage. But a lot of people, they never get to that place. You know, there's, there's studies about the seven-year itch. After seven years, it's when a lot of marriages crumble. And I think because for about seven years, for seven years of your marriage, and for some of you, it's been 20 or 30, and some of you are, are still doing this right now, you are trying to change your spouse into who you've always wanted them to be instead of learning to love your spouse for who they are and who God created them to be. Now, in the, the permanent setting of marriage, you're actually, you, you hopefully will get to the place where you realize this is who they are and this is who they're not, and I'm going to love them for who they are, and they're going to love me for who I am and who I'm not. It's the permanence of marriage that allows us to confess our sins to one another and not fear that they're going to bail the minute we tell them that there's some ugliness or darkness in us. 
And that way, the permanence of marriage enables us to, it's like a tangible experience of the love of God shown to us in the gospel. Jesus affirms that marriage is meant to be permanent. That's the third affirmation. The fourth and final affirmation. Jesus affirms that marriage is a deep, mystical union sealed by God. That on one level, marriage is a decision we make. It's something we pursue. It's something we do. But at a deeper, more profound level, every marriage is an act of God. Jesus says, that's where I'm getting it from. So they are no longer, verse 6, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together. Who did the joining together? God. Marriage is a, it's like a divine mystery where God steps in and he joins together. He takes the two and makes them one. Now, holding those all together, if men and women are created in the image of God, if marriage is woven into the very structure and fabric of creation, if it's meant to be permanent, and if it's this deep mystical union sealed by God, then divorce is not just two people drifting apart. It is tearing at the very fabric of God's design. It's running counter to how God created us and created the world. Put it another way, divorce is always the result of sin. There is no divorce in Genesis 1 or 2. Now, sometimes it's the sin of one spouse, gone off the deep end or just done something horrible or just turned a cold shoulder. Usually it's the sin of both spouses. Now, I want to be clear, this doesn't mean that there is never a circumstance where divorce is permitted, as we will see. And it doesn't mean that divorce is always sinful. It just means that divorce is always the result of sin. It always goes against God's design. God created marriage. Humanity created divorce. God never commands or celebrates divorce in his word. Sometimes it's necessary, but it's never celebrated. Jesus lays this out, and the Pharisees say, okay, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? If Genesis 1 and 2 are God's design for marriage and it's supposed to be permanent, then what in the world is Deuteronomy 24 doing in the Bible? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Now the language here, that verse 7, the Pharisees said, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? And Jesus said, he didn't command, he allowed it. And the reason he allowed it is because of the hardness of the human heart. And there's, there's something actually strangely comforting in this verse that Jesus is saying, it's not God's desire, it's not his design, but also it's happening. And God, because he is so rich in mercy and compassion, even though he knows this tears at the very fabric of the created order, he's not going to leave people in the midst of divorce to navigate it entirely by themselves. He's actually going to bring some order to how divorce happens. In particular, to curb injustice and the gross mistreatment of women in the community. So your hardness of heart 
God intervened and said, if you're going to do this, even though I told you not to, here's how you could do it in a way that won't actually utterly destroy my very creation. Jesus continues, says, and I say to you, Pharisees, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now that's a loaded verse, but let's keep it in context first and then we can, we can uh, extrapolate on it from there. But remember, Jesus is talking to the devout religious leaders of his day, many of whom have been divorced. They're very self-righteous. I mean, they're always looking down their nose at Jesus. They're so proud of their holiness. And he tells the Pharisees, you think because you have a certificate of divorce or you issued a certificate of divorce, you're fine, you're not fine. If you've divorced your wives, if you've kicked them to the curb for anything less than sexual immorality, you've betrayed God's design, you've broken his law, and you are adulterers. It's one of the most scandalous things he could have said to, this, to these men. Now, the disciples, presumably after that interaction, they pulled him aside, <laughs> as they often do, and they heard this teaching. And they said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. <laughs> disciples are saying... <laughs> One man, one woman, forever, thick and thin, no matter what. That sounds really, really challenging. I don't know if that's really, there's no escape clause. You know, in an age like ours, marked by no-fault divorce and where people just drift apart, this teaching is jarring, but it was just as jarring in Jesus' day as well. It's not like we're imposing some norm from the first century on the 20th century. We're seeing what Jesus taught, and it was challenging then, and it's challenging now. I want to press into some specific applications. Before I do, I do want to offer like a caveat qualification. There's a saying in the legal world, hard cases make bad law. That if you take the most complex and challenging and, you know, intricate cases, the most extreme, and you try to build laws based on, on those cases, you'll oftentimes end up with weird laws that, that don't speak to 99% of life circumstances. Well, I find that, that principle to be true in preaching as well, especially like on sermons, on topics like divorce. There are some very extreme cases. Some of you have gone through, some you know people are going through, just there are a lot of factors. It's extremely messy. And I can't speak to all of those in a sermon in any helpful way. But I would say for 95 to 98% of the married couples in this room, I want to offer these applications. But I also want to recognize there's another 2 to 5% here. Uh, and if you're in that 2 to 5%, if you're in an abusive or destructive relationship, talk to a pastor. Jesus, he gives one reason here for divorce. He says... Sexual morality, it's a Greek word, porneia, which is the, where we get the word pornography. So it means things like adultery, yes. It's broader than that, any form of sexual morality. So that's one ground for divorce. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he actually adds another one. He says abandonment, desertion. And Paul kind of adds this on and says, well, I mean, if one spouse just totally bails on the other, like they don't have to remain married to them for decades if they never see them again. And those are the two hard and fast, clear teachings in the Bible of, of uh, why, we, why divorce is permitted. I would say that after 15 years of pastoral ministry, like there are just some crazy cases out there. And I, I've done care and counseling for some really, really hard, unimaginable circumstances. And I think most of them would fall under one of these two. But I would also say that there are extreme cases, and just because it doesn't fit neat and clean under one of these two, that I would still like if you feel like you're in a really bad place to come and talk to a pastor. And I think sometimes the way we interpret these passages, this is me speaking, I think sometimes we can become almost pharisaical in how legalistic we read them. I mean, we've seen churches like this where men can beat their wife to a pulp over and over again, and the wife has no grounds, no recourse in that situation, but if the man for some reason committed adultery one time, then the door's flung wide open. I think that lacks wisdom and common sense. I also want to be really careful because when you're in a hard marriage, you're kind of looking for any reason you can to get out. So we got to navigate this wisely with wisdom. We as your pastors want to step in and help and support you. All right, two applications. One, to those who've been divorced. You know, divorce... Divorce is one of the messiest things anyone can go through. And if you've never been divorced, just talk to someone who has, and they will affirm that. Divorce is brutal. But the salt in the wound of divorce is it's so public. There are a lot of sins that a lot of you are struggling with that two or three people know about. When you get divorced, everyone knows about it. And because God holds marriage in such high esteem. We want to discourage divorce, but throughout the last hundred years at least, what that's done is sometimes inadvertently, sometimes intentionally, divorce, like so much shame has been poured on people who've been through divorce, and divorce has been treated as an unforgivable sin. And I'm going to tell you, divorce, if you've been divorced, it is not the unforgivable sin, even if you were at fault. I mean, I know many of you have very messy history of relationships, but I don't know if anyone here can hold a candle to the messiness of David's relationship with Bathsheba. I mean, that relationship started with lust and voyeurism. He's on a roof watching her bathe. Then he goes and we don't know how much he had to compel her, but he sleeps with her. He's so infatuated with her that he has her husband killed in battle so he can freely marry her. I mean, that is a messy start to a relationship, and I do not recommend it. And yet, David had a good friend named Nathan. And Nathan didn't look at David and his sin and just say, well, that's super messy. I probably shouldn't say anything because he's the king and David went and called him to the carpet. He called him to repentance. He said, what you've done is not right. And by God's grace, David received that word from Nathan. And God not only cleansed David of his sin, he also redeemed their marriage. 
One of the greatest songs we have in all of Scripture, Psalm 51, was written about David's repentance and the healing he experienced. God redeemed him, their marriage, and eventually Bathsheba gave birth to a son named Solomon. And Solomon was not only one of the wisest men who ever lived, he was also the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. There's a lot we could pull out of that, but here's what I want to tell you, especially for those with really messy pasts. There is no situation, no drama, no divorce, no remarriage that is beyond the redeeming work of God. Yes, God hates divorce, but he doesn't hate divorced people. And God, if we know anything about him from the scriptures, we know he loves to demonstrate his grace in messy situations. He loves to bless in hard circumstances. And so if you've got this and the shame of it still with you, if you've never confessed your part, today's a day. Confess your sins. Hand your shame over to him. I heard one pastor say that no one's ever perished at Jesus' feet. No one's ever come to Jesus on their knees and he's shamed them. There's grace, there's healing, and there's forgiveness. Second application and last application is to the married. My application for married people is keep your heart open. What I mean by that, something I never really noticed until this week is that Jesus, he says the real problem with divorce, what, what really drives divorce, the reason God had to make an allowance for divorce, it was the hardness of the human heart. And the brilliant Matthew scholar R.T. France notes that hardness of heart refers not so much to people's attitude towards one another, cruelty, neglect, or the like, but their attitude to God, whose purpose and instruction they have set aside. I've walked with a lot of couples through a lot of things, and I'll tell you, marriage can survive almost anything. It can survive tragedy and loss. It can survive mistreatment. It can survive betrayal. It can survive adultery. The one thing a marriage cannot survive is when one or both spouses harden their hearts, not just to each other, but to God. In fact, I would say a heart that is closed off to your spouse is a heart that is at least in some degree closed off to God. So the application, married folks, is keep your hearts open. A hard heart's a closed heart. God calls us to have an open heart. And I think this is so important. I mean, we say this between Pastor Jonathan and I, we like every other sermon, we're talking about the heart, the heart, the heart. Because the Pharisees, and there's just something about us that we care about, like the mechanics and the outward, the outer, God cares about the heart. And there's something in churches, I've seen this again and again. I've known husbands who, because they're good Christians, they don't want to divorce their wives because that would be shameful and sinful. But at the same time, they didn't like their wife and want to be married to their wife, so they made their wives' lives miserable. But they didn't commit adultery, there was no abuse, and they didn't abandon them. So they could check the box that they were being faithful, that they were being horrible husbands, and they were betraying God's vision and his design. It's just a weird, twisted game people play. 
It's like, well, I, I did all the external. God cares about the heart. And for a marriage to survive, thrive, flourish, requires us to be people who have open hearts, not just to our spouses, but to God. What does that actually look like? I think, I think it looks like holy curiosity, which is something I talk about quite frequently here. And what I mean by holy curiosity is when marriage gets hard, you remember, okay, this is God's design, not mine. And this marriage wasn't just a choice I made. It's something that God did. God joined together. And God is good and he's powerful. And so whatever hardships we're facing right now, they, they are not off of God's radar. He's sovereign over them. And so maybe, just maybe, he wants to do something, not just in my spouse, but in me through this hard circumstance. Years ago, Eugene Peterson, he, speaks, he spoke to this. He, he did an interview with Christianity Today about the nature of pastoral ministry, about like what his job, what my job is. And in that interview, he says, my job as a pastor is not to solve people's problems or to make them happy but to help them see grace operating in their lives. And it's hard to do because our whole culture is going the other direction, saying that if you're smart enough and get the right kind of help, you can solve all your problems. The truth is there aren't very many happy people in the Bible. But there are people who are experiencing joy and peace and the meaning of Christ's suffering in their lives. And the work of spirituality is to recognize where we are, the particular circumstances of our lives, to recognize grace and say, do you suppose God wants to be with me in a way that does not involve changing my spouse or getting rid of my spouse or my kids, but in changing me and in doing something in my life that maybe I could never experience without this pain? and this suffering. Keeping an open heart in your marriage means recognizing that the problems in your marriage, you can't put them all on your spouse. And really, your call is to put the, the focus on yourself and say, what am I bringing into this? What dysfunction am I contributing? And you can do that when you know God is at work within us not just in really challenging marriages, but even in good marriages that face their challenges. That's how he grows us. This week I was talking with Lindsay, who just read, she leads our connections ministry. And she said something that I think most parents feel. She said, I want to keep my kids from the hard stuff. There's just something instinctual about a parent. Like I just want to shield them from all the hard things. Right now there's a lot of hard stuff. But she said, it's precisely that hard stuff, though, that makes great people and makes deep people and makes wise people. No one becomes a great, deep, soulful person through a life of ease. It's the hard stuff. And it's pressing through, holding on to hope, what God is doing. Now, I know talking with you and from looking at the statistics, I know that there are a number of you here who are considering divorce right now. And I beg you to take it off the table. Like, remove it as an option. 
As long as that's an option, you're never going to ask God, okay, what are you trying to do in me? Instead, you're going to say, how do I get there? How do I hit that button? And I want you to know, like, you know, I don't want to be misheard as I talk about grace for people who've been through divorce. Yes, there's grace. God can redeem even the worst of situations, but that doesn't mean there are no consequences. A couple years back, I did an in-depth study on David's life. And yes, God healed and forgave, but his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba was a turning point in his life and not for the better. I'm not saying that's the way it always goes, but I am saying it had effects on his life for the rest of his life. Not only does it affect you, it affects your spouse, it affects your kids. It affects us, the church. We've had a few really messy divorces in our church over the last decade. Man, it's sent shockwaves through the lives of hundreds of people. People leaving the church because they don't want to be there if this person's there. It's devastating. And so I encourage you, stick it out. Reach out for help. Reach out to the pastors. We want to help you. You might be miserable and your, your marriage might be miserable. We're not asking you to just stick it out in misery for the rest of your life. Instead, we're saying, stick it out for now and come and get help and bring other believers in who might be able to help you move forward. Don't give up because who knows what God might be doing and could do in your life. One of the things I love about our church is the diversity of life stages represented within our body. Uh, Some dear friends of ours, they've been married for, I think, just under 40 years. And they're very open about the fact that the first 25 years of their marriage, they they didn't like each other. And that's like, that's the nice way of putting it. They couldn't stand each other. They didn't enjoy being around each other. They didn't enjoy being married. They both wanted out, but they were believers and they knew what God's word said. And so they stayed married, even though they didn't love each other at all. They'll say that about 15 years ago, you know, they were both experienced this awakening to the gospel and it totally transformed their marriage. And they said the last 15 years of their marriage have been some of the most incredible years, the most incredible years, not just of their marriage, but of their lives. They truly enjoy one another. They look forward to being with each other. And they say, if you would go back 16 years and tell us that we would be where we are now, we would have laughed and said, no way. God couldn't do something like that, but he did. Because our God is a God of grace and power. And there is no situation, no circumstance. That's beyond repair. And so if you're married, keep your heart open and stick it out, please. For your life, the life of your spouse, the life of your kids, the life of the church. Do hard things because God does great things in us in the midst of them. As we come to the Lord's table... We're reminded that our standing with God, it's defined not by how good of a husband or wife or father or mother or friend. Our standing before God, it's not dependent on any of those things. It's dependent solely on the body of Christ, which was broken for us and the blood of Christ, which was poured out for us. And so if you're here and you're a believer, I encourage you to eat and to drink deeply of the grace of God. To be reminded that God doesn't save us 
because we do things perfectly or imperfectly. He saves us by his grace. But when he saves us, he also calls us and empowers us. He has a vision for our life of who he wants us to become. And so as we feast, we're reminded we're saved by grace and we're empowered by grace to live into the life God has for us. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.